so we're, we're talking about how clocks divide time and therefore divide us. That a clock is not the clock for the present moment, it's in reference to the past and future. And so a good meditation student who is going off on his own retreat doesn't need to put himself on the kind of schedule that a meditation retreat has. Then mm -hmm. the retreats, as I was saying, is only, you know, is less than 100 years since they've been doing the very first retreats anywhere ever for Vipassana. Before that, it was always not practiced with a time clock. But there were things that did get used for indications that have been used, which probably gave the idea of the clock. And that is when the jaw stick has burned completely out, then the mosquitoes come. Mm. Okay? And so that's a time. It's got an important point to it. But it's a real time, not a ding-dong of a yes. clock. Yes, yes. Uh, and so another one would be when the candle burns out, would be another indication. It's funny you saying that. I, I got one in here. Like... All right. Well, uh, it depends upon how the candle is manufactured. Uh, but generally, um, I have seen candles that were manufactured so that it would burn about an inch an hour. Mm -hmm. Okay, but that's a time, an old kind of timepiece. Yes, yes. But the kind of candles uh, that you would use, in fact, the kind of candles that they give monks are the ones that are very thin and therefore fairly quick burning. Mm -hmm. And so those things don't last but a few minutes, maybe an hour or so. They, they're very common here in Thailand, but I don't see those kind of candles in the West very often. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, these are ways that um, are natural timing uh, ways. But basically, the, the important question to ask is, when the alarm goes off, or when the candle goes out, or when the incense stick goes out, then what? Then what is a major question. And here's what I'm getting at. Many students will say, oh, I'm going to practice for an hour a day. I'm going to build up to an hour a day. Maybe I'll get an hour and a half a day, and next month I'll do two hours a day. Okay, so now is it an hour a day? Guess what? That means to me and everyone else who's considering it is, is that now he's being mindful for one hour and he's in hindrance for 23. Mm -hmm. Which is going to win that game? Yes, absolutely. Okay. What we need to do is to learn more and more often to wake up more and more often throughout the day. Throughout the day, yes. Okay, sitting, sitting meditations, uh, there, there is real indications, and I'm not against sitting meditation at all, but uh, it's climbed too high on the status ladder in the Western mind. I see. I see. Okay, it's climbed way too high on the status of the uh, Western mind to think that meditation has to do with a certain kind of posture 
and a certain formality and set of rituals, mm -hmm. including yes. bells, candles, incense, and alarm clocks. Mm -hmm. Okay, and a bit of a rupa, a, a Buddha rupa, and some bowing and scraping, and yeah. all kinds of other stuff that have really nothing to do with uh, Anapanasati. But it helps in the sense that we're setting the environment because the reality of that whole situation has a quality to it that's a number one quality, and that is seclusion. There really is, and you're actually going to insist upon yourself, there is no place to go and nothing to do other than sit here for until the alarm rings. Mm -hmm. All right? And they punish themselves that way. Rather than, okay, until the alarm rings, I'm going to enjoy the heck out of sitting here because yes. I ain't got no place to go and nothing to do and I can just sit here and have a ball. And very few people go into their sitting meditation with that attitude. Yes. And so, they, therefore, they're not enjoying it. So the way to look at it is um, we do want to increase the time. But we want to increase the time based upon certain circumstances. An example of that is, is that the human mind gets tired. We know that so well within our educational system. They call it... Um, uh, um, attention span? Attention span, precisely. How long can it stay focused? The average person can kind of stay focused if they're interested for up to 20 minutes. Children, not so much. Mm. So that's the place to start with meditation is to start with about 20 minutes. Why? Because that's the attention span of normal people. Mm -hmm. and, and after that, they don't have the attention span. Why? Because their mind is tired. They're tired of paying attention. They're tired of the tribute that it takes to pay to stay alert, that mm -hmm. it's better to just let everything go back on automatic pilot, which is dangerous. Yes. To not watch where we're going. So we're actually building up a new kind of mental muscle. And that mental muscle is the mental muscle of investigation, to be here, to look, to note. And that takes work. It takes the same amount of work as actual reading, but you know that some readers get very good at it so that they can not only read fast, but they can read for a long time and absorb a lot of information. Yeah. Humans can do that. We can do that with meditation also, but the point that we're looking for is to uh, extend that time for the mind to stay fit for work. And that we know that the mind is fit for work when we have it in a state that is satisfying and satisfactory. Which means now that a very natural time to finish meditation is when the mind gets so tired, which is not very much tired, that we can't maintain being very happy or being in a state of sukha. That, in fact, the hindrances will come back. We can chase the hindrance out and chase them out, and eventually they'll settle down, 
But then when the mind gets tired, they start rushing back in again. Yes. That's an actual time for us to know when is the right time to finish our sitting meditation. But we do want to build it up a little bit. And so one of the ways that we can do that, and, and one of the ways that we, in fact, can work with getting the tiredness out of the mind, because actually uh, it, that's labeled as a hindrance. I'm sorry to say that the original Christian translators translated this poly into sloth and torpor. Mm. I mean, how out of date English can we get with that? But mm. torpor is actually sleepiness and tiredness. But sloth has got more to do with a don't care attitude. It's like, why bother? But that why bother comes when the load is heavy. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's like and apathy? When, huh? Apathy? I don't know that word. Like uh, the apathy, state of... Apathy, apathy, yes. apathy. Yes, I got you. Okay. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Apathy. Apathy is merely a state of tired mind. Apathy, in fact, is the exact opposite of the enthusiasm that we're intending to build. There is a very interesting thing I, I just uh, thought about of uh, apathy, because that was uh, one of the main feelings that would uh, like uh, hindrance me. And I think it's uh, directly attached to the fact that maintaining a sense of self in itself is very demanding. Like, expending all that energy makes me apathetic, for example. Well, it makes you tired. Yes, and the exactly. Comes tired. Yes, exactly. It's a, okay, it's a very so tiring process. Okay, so what we've been talking about, there's a solution built right into it. It's time mm -hmm. to stop, or at least make a big change. Yes. Stand up, walk around, take a few deep breaths, go inspect the refrigerator, go to the toilet, you know, all of that kind of stuff that'll get us back into an ordinary mind state. Mm -hmm. Because we've gotten ourselves tired, and we don't know it. It, it really is like that that the slow horse doesn't know he's slow. Yes, absolutely. All right, that's the whole point of it is, is that we don't know. We're looking at it from kind of the inside or from yes. the observation. Yes. Uh, and so uh, if the mind gets tired, we don't, we don't know it. When the self is not there, we don't know it, because when we're looking for it, we always find it. Yes. Yes. And in fact, the way of thinking about the self is we only have a self when we're thinking about the self, that when we're thinking about something else someplace. For instance, I can be looking at a uh, travel magazine and look at the pretty picture of the mountain and enjoy that. But as soon as I have the thought, my, I'd like to go there, now the self comes in. Yes. And it's always the self that comes with the thought of the self. We can enjoy the scenery, or we can be in the scenery and put ourselves in the scenery. You've got to have a self to do that. And we do that often. We're experts at it. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. 
So the self always comes along with like the craving. Like you just said, uh, I want to go to this place. That's exactly what the Buddha says in his list of the teacher Samuppada. That with Vedana comes uh, Tanha Upadana. From Upadana comes uh, uh, Bhava and then Jati. Okay. Now that can stuff can happen almost instantly, but you've got it nailed. Yes, clinging creates the self, and what does it create? Also, it creates the self so that it can go into one of the woeful states, and that's in the definition of dukkha. The becoming yes. a self actually puts one in a woeful state. And the yes. four, there are four woeful states that correspond exactly to the four modes of clinging. Mm. So that we wind up as a hungry ghost when we want things we can't have. All right? We wind up angry and frustrated when we don't like things. We become a dumb animal when we're confused. And can be led around. We can be lied to. And told to do this, and you'll get a reward, and then you don't get a reward. These are one of these are three of them. The fourth one is the state of fear, the woeful state of <clears throat> you don't want to go do it because you won't. You think you'll lose. You'll die in that battle, so you don't want to go to battle. Fear. Those are the four woeful states. And it takes a self to experience each one of those woeful yes. states. Yes. To be in it. That's the woeful state. When you come out of the woeful state, now you're back into, let us say, normal reality, where you're not suffering. The self directly is involved. Self is the vehicle for suffering. It's the bucket that suffering or uh, dissatisfaction is kept in. If you don't have that vessel of the self, then what's, their, what's the dissatisfaction? Who is yes. to be dissatisfied? Yes, it's impossible. Yes. Now, I want to tell you a little story. Okay. I tell this story often because it was significant to me at the time. When I was six and seven, my dad had a job as a projectionist. And he worked for um, a guy in a conglomerate so that he went from various movie houses. He didn't just stay and project in one place. He was all over the place. And so after school, I would go to whatever theater he was in so that I could either, one, see the movie or piddle around or stay with him in the projection booth. And I learned a lot about science and projectors. Wow, did I get an education about how to make movies, in fact. But the point that I want to make here is that you have seen uh, movies that were on film, and you've also seen the film stretched out, so you can see one picture after another, a frame, yes. a frame, a frame. Yes, and yes. if you look very closely along the line, there's a very little, tiny little thing that is just... Uh, wiggling kind of things, but when you put a photocell right there, they even had photocells back in the 1940s, so that they could actually take a set of uh, take uh, a linear kind of film 
and pass it in front of the photocell and have the photocell connected to a microphone. Mm. And that microphone would then record with that photocell into that uh, um, film. Later, you could take another kind of uh, a receptive photocell, put a light on the other side, pass that film by at the same speed, and get audio out of it. They perfected that by the 1930s. They didn't have magnetic tape that could do as good an audio as they had with the uh, uh, film. Film audio was, in fact, the way to go way back in the old days. Boy, was it expensive. One take, and you shot your film. <laughs> All right. So um, the point that I'm making is each one of these frames has to go through the projector in two ways. One is it has to re it has to get that photocell information for the audio going at an exactly straight speed, but the film itself chatters because they take a frame and they stop it and then they pass light through it and then they turn the light off some way and then they'll move the next frame over and then they'll shine a light through it. And then they'll stop that light and move the frame over and shoot that light. And the mechanism in there, now the way that they did it back in the 1950s, the light itself was an arc light. Very, very bright, very powerful, did not shut on and off 24 times a second. So what they did was they had a mechanism that had a rotating bar that had a fan on it, a fan-like thing. So that half the time that was in front of the actual uh, lens of the uh, projector's uh, uh, optical system, and it would cut off, and then it would move the film, and then the thing would move on by, and now you could see the next uh, shutter. What I'm saying now is, is that back in the 1950s and 60s, people only saw half a movie. Because half the time the screen was black and they didn't know it. I know it was black half the time because I was there as a kid to see that mechanism that turned around and around to see that, in fact, it was half black and half white or half clear. So... If the mind works that way so that you can actually give it a, uh, a blank or let us say a picture and then a 24th of a second later show it another picture and then 24th of a second later show it another picture, the mind cannot see the in-between. And they did a lot of experiments with that kind of stuff, like how many... Um, disjointed frames could you put in before people could see it because they experimented mm -hmm. with advertisements like that. In other words, they'd yes. take one frame out of a movie in this minute and put a picture of their candy bar in there. Yes, a subliminal message, right? Precisely, exactly so. Yes. All right. Now, here's where we're going with this. We think that we are conscious, which means taking in input all the time where in fact we're not. We take in information and then we process it and get an internal image. And then we go and get more data, do an internal process, and come up with another visual image on the inside. Consciousness is dependently arising. The Buddha could see that. He could see that the, that the, that the mind was 
in that kind of state of end things to keep arising very quickly. Yes. All right. Guess what else does that? Not just consciousness arises and arises and arises and arises, just like we can see new frame and then another new frame and then another new frame. And we're completely oblivious to the changing frame. The self? Well, that goes for the self, too. That when there is no self until you think about the self and then you think that it's been there all along. Yes. When you're not thinking selfishly, you're not in self. There is no self when you're altruistic. When you're thinking about, let yes, me say that there's yes. a car out, accident out there and some child screams. You immediately get up and run out there, not thinking about you at all. You're only thinking about what happened out there and you're going after that. Okay, you're going to see if you could help. All right, but now go to see if you can help bring self in. Otherwise, it wasn't there. And some people can operate selflessly for long periods of time. And generally, the self comes up in and around hindrances. So if we are free from hindrance, we're generally free from self. Because as we said, self and and dukkha are let us say the self is a container for dukkha. So if you are free from the hindrances, then you're more than likely going to be free from the self. Or what self you're going to recognize is going to be a different level or a different kind of self. Yes. And then we begin to recognize, wait a minute, this same self not only pops up and down, but when it does pop up, it's not the same popped up thing that it was last time it popped up. It's fluid. Things change. It's a different kind of a self now, but we have always just assumed it's me. But now we can begin to say, oh no, things are fluid. That, in fact, the personality can be changed. And this the Buddha is counting on. Why? Because if people think that things don't change, then they automatically think, I can't change, and now they're stuck. Yes. Oh, Anapanasati for you, my friend, until you get the idea that you can, in fact, come out of your suffering right now. That's the whole point of it. But a lot of people, they'll go sit in meditation thinking, someday, <laughs> someday I'll have some value out of this meditation. But if they're not developing skills while they're sitting there, then it's unlikely putting in the hours is going to be actually productive. Mm-hmm. So, this is what we need to do. If we're, if we're actually looking at it in the sense of, is our meditation time the same as putting in the hours? In other words, many, many companies pay people when they clock in. They pay, they pay them for their time. Other companies operate with piecemeal. How much did you get done? Mm-hmm. Okay. Which do you think meditation is? 
Is it punching in the clock and setting no, on the no, floor? No. Productivity. Ah, it has to do with the productivity. Exactly. Okay. So that means that we could do it like this. Can you start to count and keep count of how many times you wake up? That's your production. Mm -hmm. That's the skill that you're uh, trying to get going. How many times can you wake up? Basically, we could look at it in the sense of we can wake up each breath on the in-breath. We have to remember to take an in-breath yes. because if you don't remember to take an in-breath, the body will go back to its normal breathing. And when we take an out-breath, we intentionally take a long, deep breath, out-breath, mindfully, which means that we have to remember to do it. And so if we're practicing correctly, there's mindfulness coming really quick all the time because at least twice a breath. On average, about once every five seconds, I'd say. And while that's spectacular in that moment, there's more to do. But at least we can get started at that level to keep coming back and coming back and coming back and coming back and coming back. That's um, the, uh, the the Buddha used an example of training horses and elephants, especially training the elephant, tethering yes. the elephant. Mm -hmm. Okay, and the elephant will wander away. Yes. And the man will go get him and take him back out again. And in, in, in the night, animal will wander away again. He works at it. But eventually he gets the idea, if I keep wandering away, I'll get caught, so why bother? <laughs> and so he begins to settle down. So too is the mind. After it's starting to get trained, it begins to settle down and doesn't wander away so much. I see. And so that's the reason that we practice yes. the And we want to practice it over and over and over again and we actually want to just like in the beginning of meditation we use the breathing as our first anchor the first anchor we have in sense of mindfulness of breathing okay what do we mean by the anchor is, is that that's the intended object of sati can i remember to watch the breath yes absolutely okay so uh. But we now we can begin to do other things that give us other anchors for sati throughout the day. Because when we're sitting in meditation, there's not much happening other than breathing. So let the breathing be the anchor. When we're out in the world, it's good to have other anchors because breathing becomes more subtle. And the other anchors can be quite big. And so we can use a different kind of anchor in order to bring mindfulness on. The Buddha uh, spoke about using the hands and the body itself as part of the anchor. What are we doing with the body? In other words, grasping and reaching, touching, grasping, setting things down with the hands. So we begin to start being mindful of the hands. This is, in fact, part of, you could call it the walking meditation, because when you're sitting on the floor in the meditation hall, you're not doing much with your hands. But when we're out and about, when we go to the bathroom, when we're eating our meals, or when we're doing almost anything else, our hands are involved with it. 
so that can be now a new um, object of meditation. Right, a new object of meditation, as it were. But yes. I prefer to use the word anchor to remember okay. Look at okay. what your hands are doing. Now, we're going to be doing that in kind of a certain way in the sense of by being mindful of our hands, just like we slow down the breath, it's not going to be much mindful of our hands if we don't do something with that mindfulness. Yes. So slowing down what the hands are doing is a good what part of mindfulness. An example is when we grasp something that we know what is the first thing that we touch? Uh, let's use this as an, as an object. All right. So when I'm practicing this, when I want to grasp it, I'm watching my hands. I open my hands as I approach it, almost like a dancer, poetically. And then when I touch, I make sure that I notice what's the first thing that I touch. In that case, it was this finger. And then as I grasp it, I do so slowly, knowing that I've got it held in my hand. I when I put it down, I'm going to start doing it exactly the same way. If you're practicing this well, you'll never lose your car keys. Because you will mindfully set them down. Mm. You'll watch what you're doing. You'll pay attention. Okay. okay. You'll start to uh, uh, do that investigation of what are your hands doing. And so... This is actually uh, part of the, let's call it gracefulness. I see. Begin to watch the body, and as you watch the body and its movements and activities, it naturally becomes a bit more graceful. I see. Begin to slow down. We don't grab things. That we, uh, we open and close our hands. Uh, I see. Or when we're holding them, we know how we're holding them. That's almost like uh, mimicking what we are trying to accomplish with the mind, but using the body. Well, you can think of this as actually on upon a step three that we can use throughout the day to where step one and two are being used more for uh, sitting practice. But the mindfulness of the body can... Sorry, also... your, your voice got kind of robotic. I don't know why. All right. Um, and uh, your screen froze. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, but from afar, like you're in a very large distance. All right. Your, your uh... image is still frozen. I'm not sure whether the problem is the microphone or our uh, internet connection yet. Still can't hear you. I, I know you're talking, but it's like a very robotic thing. All right. Does this help? Use one word at a time. Let me try to call you again, okay? One second. <laughs> 